Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Ghost on the Phone by Venus Flytraps. This talented act from Cleveland is our featured Ohio musical artist for tonight, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We're going to tell you a little bit more about them and let you hear the rest of the song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. It's time to explore another mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. Steve, since day one, you've been after me for some kind of old-time gangster mystery, and I finally have one for you. All right. Perhaps you've heard of some guy who went by the name of John Dillinger. I have heard of John Dillinger. Wow, I'm glad, because here's something that might surprise you. John Dillinger lived to the ripe old age of 31. He spent nearly a decade, almost his entire adult life, in prison. His career as the leader of a famous bank-robbing gang, it was a spree that lasted less than a year. But man, did he make an impact, and quite a bit of it right here in Ohio. So here's the mystery. What happened to all the loot he stole? Oh, I love these types of podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, FBI agents were so convinced the notorious outlaw and his gang might have buried some of their money on a Northwest Ohio farm. They spent more than three months searching the place and staking it out, hoping some gang associate might sneak in to unearth it. Right, to come back for the loot. Yeah. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start this story a little closer to the beginning. John Dillinger, he was born in Indianapolis, Indiana, to the elder John Dillinger, a local grocer with a reputation for being a harsh disciplinarian, and his mom, Molly, who died when he was just four years old. Dillinger was a troublemaker from the start. He was remembered by his teenage contemporaries as a bully. He left fighting and stealing He dropped out of school to work at a machine shop, and he was still a teenager when he was arrested in 1922 for auto theft. Hoping to escape the messy life he'd been building for his young self in Indiana, he enlisted in the United States Navy. But he did no better there. A few months into his service, he deserted while his ship was docked in Boston. Dillinger returned to Indiana. He got married in 1924, uh, attempting to settle down in Mooresville, but he wasn't really interested in making money as much as taking money. He and a friend planned the robbery of a local grocery store and then carried it off. Dillinger knocked a clerk on the head with a machine bolt wrapped in cloth and stole $50. Unfortunately for them, A minister who knew the two men saw them fleeing the scene. They were arrested the very next day. Now, Dillinger's father was a deacon in the local Mooresville church, and he hoped to persuade authorities to take it easy on his son. 
He told the prosecutor he would get his son to confess to the crime and plead guilty without retaining a defense attorney in exchange for a lenient sentence. Dillinger carried out his part of the deal, and he was convicted of assault and battery with intent to rob and conspiracy to commit a felony. The judge, however, wanted no part of the deal and threw the book at him. He sentenced the 21-year-old to 10 to 20 years. Dillinger's accomplice, Ed Singleton, got 2 to 14 years. So for the next decade, Dillinger lived at the Indiana State Prison, a time that made him bitter and angry. He was quoted saying, I will be the meanest bastard you ever saw when I get out of here. And he had lots of help learning how. He made friends with some very seasoned bank robbers while in prison, including Harry Pete Pierpont, Charles Makeley, Russell Clark, and Homer Van Meter. The key name to remember here is his new bestie, Pete Pierpont. Pierpont's family, they lived in Leipzig, a village in Putnam County in northwest Ohio. I hope I'm saying that right. Have you ever heard of uh, Leipzig? No, I've never heard of okay. that one. Leipzig or Leipzig? Please let me be saying it correctly. Anyway, we'll get back to that soon. Even with years on their sentence remaining, the men spent their days in jail planning bank heists that they were determined to carry out after they were released. Dillinger was the first to taste freedom. He was paroled on May 10, 1933, but that was the height of the Great Depression. He had little hope of finding a job, although surely it had never been his intention to get one. A month after his release, he robbed his first bank. In the early morning hours of June 21, 1933, he and two other men forced entry into the New Carlisle National Bank in New Carlisle, Ohio, that's northeast of Dayton, and waited for daylight. As soon as an employee arrived and opened the vault, they revealed themselves, wearing masks and brandishing guns. They tied that employee up, as well as two others and a customer who showed up at the bank before they were done. Then they helped themselves to $10,000. Dillinger hit his second bank on August 14 in Bluffton, Ohio, where his trio of mass marauders escaped in an automobile behind a barrage of submachine gunfire. Then they hit banks in Indianapolis and Farrell, Pennsylvania. And then just like that, it seemed Dillinger's days as a bank robber were over. Authorities caught up with him in Dayton on September 22nd, and the house of a woman reported to be the sister of one of the Indiana fugitives. He had $2,600 on him, along with four pistols, a rifle, a shotgun, and two suitcases full of ammunition. They also found maps showing the fastest route out of several cities, and numerous boxes of roofing tacks, which bandits often threw at the tires of pursuing police cars. Dillinger was taken to the Allen County Jail in Lima, Ohio, to be arraigned in the Bluffton robbery. When his jailer searched Dillinger, they found a strange paper. They asked him about it. It clearly was a plan for something. Dillinger refused to explain it. What they didn't know then was that the paper was Dillinger's plan for breaking his old friends out of the Indiana State Prison. And that plan was already in place. Dillinger had used some of his ill-gotten gains to bribe guards at the reformatory into sneaking guns into Pete Pierpont, 
Charles Makeley, Russell Clark, and six other men. So just four days after the cell door closed on Dillinger in Lima, Ohio, the cell doors opened for Dillinger's buddies in Indiana. They escaped. Nice. This is a good story. Can you guess their first order of business? No. To rob a bank, maybe? (laughs) No. (laughs) It was to go free the guy who had just freed them. Oh, okay. On October 12, 1933, so that's just two weeks after they escaped Indiana, three of the escapees went to Lima. They dressed like Indiana State Police officers, claiming to have extradition orders to return Dillinger to Indiana. A skeptical Allen County Sheriff, Jess Sarber, said, Where are your credentials? Then one of the gunmen produced a revolver and said, these are our credentials. Uh, that's like out of the movies right or Right out of a movie, because you know what happens next? Uh, boom. Yeah. Sarber made a move for his gun, and he was shot. The sheriff's wife was right there, too, and, and a deputy, and the bandits locked those two in a cell. Then they released Dillinger and went back to Indiana to join the rest of the escapees, who history would come to know as the Dillinger Gang. The sheriff died of his wounds an hour later, but only after identifying the shooter as one of the Indiana escapees. How lucky that he knew what they looked like yeah. and, and knew who they were. Dillinger, Pierpont, and company went on to rob several more banks, and one of their main hideouts was Pierpont's family farm in Putnam County. Like I said, the village called Leipzig. Mm-hmm. Leipzig. It's okay. I think they'll forgive you. Okay, thank you. The people of Leipzig aren't going to. In January of 1934, so this is just some three months after he escaped from the Lima jail, Tillinger was back in custody. He was caught in Tucson, Arizona, and taken back to Crown Point, Indiana, where authorities boasted of having an escape-proof jail for the fugitive who had been making headlines all over the country. Tillinger faced more than just bank robbery charges here. Witnesses had identified him as pulling the trigger of a machine gun They killed an Indiana policeman during a bank robbery. Here's a funny little side story I found out about. When he got back to Crown Point, Indiana, the sheriff of that county was a woman. Really? Yeah, this is 1934. She was a woman. And I had a laugh because the newspaper account of her asking authorities for help after Dillinger escapes here, is that she was hysterical. Oh, of course, of course. (laughs) So, uh, oh, I just gave away something uh, a little too early. Dillinger is going to escape. If he had a knack for getting caught, he was equally skilled at getting away. He was very meticulous. Even in his bank robberies, he was just a very meticulous type of person. He planned out everything. Well organized. Listen to this. On March 3rd, so this is a few days before his trial for murder is to begin, he carves a gun using a wooden shelf in his jail and a razor. Then he uses the fake gun to shepherd three guards into a cell, locking them up. He takes two men hostage, and he drives off in the sheriff's car before releasing his hostages too late, two hours later, all with a fake gun. A nationwide manhunt for Dillinger ensues. Newspapers all over the country are printing front-page stories about his exploits. But it did not slow down the Dillinger gang. Three days after Dillinger's escape, they robbed a bank in South Dakota. A week after that, they had another bank in Iowa. Dillinger's gang was so brazen, 
They even raided police stations to supply themselves with guns, ammunition, and bulletproof vests. Well, Dillinger had picked up a girlfriend along the way. Her name was Evelyn Frechette. She went by the name Billy. After his escape from Indiana, Dillinger and Billy moved to an apartment building in St. Paul, Minnesota, where an observant landlord contacted the FBI. That led to a shootout at the apartment between Dillinger and one of his gang members and a couple of FBI agents. Dillinger was struck in the left calf with a bullet, but I am telling you, this guy is made of Teflon. He and girlfriend Billy got away, slipping through a back door and driving off. They even found a Minneapolis doctor who was known for treating illicit patients. And after five days of convalescing, Dillinger was off again. They went back to Mooresville, Indiana. Who goes back home to visit their family? Yeah. <laughs> They're wedded by every police force in the country. Well, you know, uh, Bonnie and Clyde would do that stuff. They did. You know, and this was during Bonnie and Clyde's time, by the way. As yeah, Dillinger same would out, time. Yeah, Dillinger would outlast them by a couple of months. And yeah. They actually said that Dillinger... I mean, it probably isn't true, but Dillinger and Pretty Boy Floyd, Pretty Boy Floyd sent flowers to the funeral. Um, I do know that Babyface Nelson, for a time, was in Dillinger's gang. Oh, really? So, yeah. So oh. a lot of these guys knew each other. Anyway, they they went back to Mooresville. They wanted to visit, visit Dillinger's family, and there, a car accident would bring the police swarming again. He was in a car with his half brother Hubert when Hubert fell asleep behind the wheel of the car and rammed another automobile. They raced away from the scene on foot, made it back to Mooresville, but police investigating the accident found the car with the maps, the machine gun magazines, a length of rope, and a bullwhip. Apparently, Dillinger had planned to use the bullwhip on a lawyer that he had felt had done him wrong. The Dillinger family, they went on as if nothing had happened. They bought a new car and enjoyed a family picnic at the Mooresville farm. But the FBI knew now that Dillinger was back in town, and they had eyes on him. They followed him the next day as Dillinger and Billy drove to Chicago. Dillinger had an appointment there with someone at a tavern. But sensing trouble, like you said, he was meticulous, and he spotted these things. Dillinger did not go into the tavern first. He sent Billy while he waited in the car outside, and the agents were inside waiting. They promptly arrested her. Dillinger saw this and drove away unnoticed. He was despondent over losing Billy, but his gang convinced him that trying to rescue her would be foolish. Dillinger would never see Billy again. By July of 1934, Dillinger had completely dropped out of sight. The FBI had no idea where he was. He was laying low in Chicago, where he had found a job as a clerk at the Board of Trade using the name Jimmy Lawrence. He also looked a bit differently now. You might have heard this about him, but he had some plastic surgery done. Earlier that year in March, a Dr. William Lozer removed some moles on Dillinger's face, changed his nose a bit, removed a distinguishing facial scar, and pulled back his cheeks. Lozer charged him 5000 bucks, but Dillinger almost paid with his life. I'm telling you, these events, it's like a movie plot. So Dillinger's getting this plastic surgery done, and he begins to suffocate from the ether he was giving. He turns blue, he stops breathing. Lozer has to pull Dillinger's tongue out of his mouth, using a pair of forceps while forcing his elbows into Dillinger's ribs. 
and Dillinger gasps and resumes breathing. Oh, man, it's like the Joker from Batman. (laughs) Apparently, this incident did not scare Dillinger off. He went back to Lozer to get his fingerprints removed. He paid him $500 a hand for a treatment of nitric and hydrochloric acid on his fingertips. Dillinger also changed his reddish hair to jet black and grew a mustache. Missing Billy, Dillinger soon found a lookalike replacement. Her name was Rita Polly Hamilton, a 26-year-old waitress. They met in June of 1934. By now, a new federal task force with no other job than to catch Dillinger had figured out he was in Chicago, and on July 21, they would find out exactly where. A madam from a Gary, Indiana brothel called the FBI. She was a Romanian immigrant being threatened with deportation, so she wanted to make a deal. Dillinger's new girlfriend, the waitress Polly, she once worked at the brothel, and she and the madam were still friends. In fact, Polly and Dillinger had asked her to go to the movies the next day. In exchange for a promise not to be deported, she revealed the place and time. So on July 22, 1934, a team of 16 federal agents and police officers from inside and outside of Chicago that had long been chasing Dillinger staked out the Biograph Theater. The marquee advertised the Clark Gable Myrna Loy movie, Manhattan Melodrama. What a melodrama this was going to be. They watched as Dillinger, Polly, and another friend went in, then waited patiently for the movie to end. The trio walked back out of the theater at 10.40 p.m. No doubt always on the alert, Dillinger flagged the agents as soon as he exited the theater. He ran into an alley, ignoring a command to surrender, and was shot from behind. He fell face first to the ground, dead. Two female bystanders were also shot in the hell of police bullets, but they survived. So we've gotten a little bit away from Ohio. Let's take the story back to Ohio, because during Dillinger's time in Chicago, his old gang was falling apart. Clark, Makeley, and Pete Pierpont, the guys who had broken Dillinger out of that jail in Lima and shot the sheriff in the process, they had all been caught. Clark was sentenced to life in prison. Makeley and Pierpont were sentenced to die in the electric chair at the Ohio Penitentiary in Columbus. A month before their execution date, Pierpont and Makeley took a page out of Dillinger's playbook. They tried to escape by brandishing fake guns carved from soap and covered with shoe polish. Makeley was killed in the escape attempt, and Pierpont was injured, but he lived long enough to be electrocuted on October 17, 1934, three months after Dillinger had been killed. Hmm. After Pierpont was executed, the FBI staked out the farm. The Dillinger gang had spent an awful lot of time there after robbing banks in northwest Ohio. And while most or all of Dillinger's gang was now dead, no one had uncovered a stash of cash anywhere. Where was their loot? Agents clearly thought that the farm in Putnam County was a good bet. Local residents who were interviewed by reporters years later recalled those many weeks of seeing agents hanging around the Pierpont farm. Sometimes they searched the grounds themselves. Other times they hid in corn stalks or perched in a seven-acre wooded area 
just in case some Dillinger associates showed up at the now-abandoned property. Nobody came. Well, at least not Dillinger's gang. The treasure hunters came. There was no indication the FBI had found what they were looking for, but the idea that they had spent so much time looking made everyone think they knew something. They just hadn't found it yet. Eventually, a farmer named Walter Schroeder bought the property. The Pierpont house burned down, the barns and the other buildings were razed, and while Schroeder humored treasure hunters by showing them where the farmhouse once stood, he drew the line at strangers tearing up his farmland. All that's left now is legend and lore. The legend of John Dillinger's year-long reign as public enemy number one, and the lore that some of his gang's booty might still be resting beneath the soil of a northwest Ohio farm. The stories are just amazing. And if you think about the time back during the Great Depression, right. and this was a time where people were having their farmlands foreclosed on and, you know, stuff like that. And this was kind of, you know, people actually made these kinds of people into celebrities. They were. Yeah. And it's not, trust me, when it, it stops at murder for me, of course. You know what I mean? Absolutely. But these these people were bucking the system, like Bonnie and Clyde and... You know, Dillinger. People saw them as like Robin Hood. Right. They weren't Robin Hood. They were not. Their money wasn't benefiting anybody but themselves, and they were killing a lot of people in the process. But the public really did see them as these kind of cultural anti-heroes. Yeah, exactly. But I think you're right. I think the time being the Great Depression, a lot of people were were hungry and dreaming of a better life and not able to get it. and. I think that probably played a lot into it. Absolutely. Well, let's see what our armchair detective has to say. Well, tonight's armchair detective is Mike Schleiss of New Franklin. Mike, you have the same last name as me. What's up with that? Uh, I think I know you. Uh, how do you know me? Uh, you are my sister. <laughs> oh, well, we're not uh, one of those companies where it's like you can't get your family involved. So every once in a while, we uh, call one of our relatives uh, to work. And thank you for being with us, Mike. No nepotism. <laughs> no, yeah, we don't have we don't have a no nepotism policy. <laughs> so, hey, what did you think of this Dillinger story? I love it. I, I love old bank robberies and and stuff like that. So, I, you know, I remember growing up as a kid and hearing all the stories of Rogues Hollow and how whether it's true or not about Jesse James and you know outlaws living down there and stuff like that. So, I've always been fascinated with it. Did you, when you were done listening to this story, did you find yourself kind of rooting for him? You know, in the beginning, but uh, you and Steve made a, a thing about, you know, murdered murder. And, you know, it, you do find yourself rooting for him in the beginning, and then you got to stop and think, well, you know, he's killing people. <laughs> you know, so this this isn't good. So, um, yeah, a you little know, bit. There is a technique that movies use when they want you to root for their scallywags, and that is they don't put a good guy 
on the screen. They don't humanize a good guy. So you don't see the stark difference between good and bad. So when you watch The Godfather, when you watch The Sopranos, when you watch The Shield, uh, even Breaking Bad, you kind of find yourself rooting for the criminals and feeling okay about it. But you really, if I had told you that that Allen County Sheriff grew up wanting to be a law enforcement officer and he had three children at home and and you know if I had given you that information you might have felt even more strongly about it but I didn't have that information I didn't include it and I think it's probably a lot of people by the time they were done with this story there was kind of like you know he did have this Robin Hood effect to him you know even in the retelling yeah and it didn't it didn't help matters to the fact where the dude was almost like a video game. I mean, I've never read or heard of a guy that had so much good luck and bad luck at the same time and who was capable of getting caught and escaping at the same time. It was almost like he was in a video game and he could push the X button and do whatever he wanted when he wanted. So it was almost like uh, listening to a guy that was in a video game almost. I love that comparison. Yeah. That's exactly what I was... I mean, who can carve a gun out of a piece of wood in their jail cell, get away with it, take hostages, and then when he breaks out of prison... How does he do it? He drives away in the sheriff's car. Exactly. I mean, these are like movie plots that you wouldn't believe. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. So, now let's put you in Dillinger's shoes. You're robbing banks all over the place, getting 10000 here, 20000 there. So, do you just take your hard-earned income to the bank and deposit it in your account? Or what do you do with your money? I think times were a lot different back then. You know, I I think there was a lot of, you know, especially during the Depression. So I'm sure there was a lot of, you know, worry about putting money in the bank. So I think back then there was probably a lot of people that hid it in can jars and in their bedrooms or buried it or whatever because they were afraid it was going to disappear. So I I can see where he would have buried it. I really do. You know, I kind of have my own theories, but we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Well, let's get to that right now. What are your theories? First of all, I, has anybody ever done any kind of background check on what happened to the Dillinger gang's families? Were they wealthy? Were they magically all of a sudden have money after they disappeared? I mean, I kind of thought that maybe they somehow, somehow, someone in the family from one of the gang members may have passed it on to their family before they either died or or went into prison. So, you know, and and then you got to stop and think if someone found the money, is it worth anything? I mean, even to this day, if somebody were to dig up that money, I mean, obviously it's stolen money, so it has to be returned, but is 30s money worth anything? you know, 100 years later. So those are all things you got to think about. But I I kind of like to think that maybe they passed it on to one of their family members. And, I mean, I, I would be wondering if one of the family members, all, you know, all of a sudden start living a very healthy life. <laughs> they definitely both had, uh, I'm thinking of Dillinger and Pierpont, the North, Northwest Ohio uh, farm guy owner um, that was in his gang. They both definitely had family members. And Pierpont's family lived on that farm even until he was executed. And then when the FBI went to the farm to search for his loot, 
that family was gone. So yeah, did they did they have the loot and take it with them and maybe just lived low long enough that they were were unseen? Yeah, I don't I don't see how you could bury money on a, on your family's lot and nobody walk away with that money. Right? But the one thing that sticks with me is they say the FBI was on that farm for three months looking for that money. And who would devote that kind of time and resources to, you know, a, a wild goose chase unless they had some kind of information, very strong information, that that money was there? That's true. That's true. But, you know, wild goose chases. I mean, you never know. Listening to it did remind me a lot of the end of the the movie i believe it was a green mile where the the guy hid the money for the for his friend but i just deep down inside i find it hard to believe that that money's still sitting there i I think somebody got it and i believe it was probably a family member that either directly knew about it or it was given to them so i would think if they knew where it was if they had to leave that farm i mean isn't that your priority (laughs) go take up the money get it to cousin charlie have him hide it we'll meet him in atlanta and i mean that's got to be you know priority number one exactly but i will tell you that you're wrong if that money existed today it would be worth a lot of money not only the value of it but you know just the collectible i'm sure value of it value yeah and if there's any way you could prove that it was dillinger's money oh yeah but i mean it does it is it still you know u.s currency I think the more interesting question would be, are you required to turn it back over? Who would you turn it? You couldn't tell what bank it came from, so I'm not sure who would own it. I would be curious legally if you... I'm sure the U.S. government would have something to say. They would have at least went their cut. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's coming from a federal institution, so I mean, you would have to think that even if it's a finder's fee, I mean, what what do you get for a finder's fee? But I don't know. I was just, when I was listening to that the whole time, I was just wondering if somebody found it, is it worth anything? So never know. Never know. Well, Mike, usually uh, when we have a business owner or a reporter online, we let them plug uh, their their website or something they're affiliated with, and you are affiliated with a recovery group, and I was wondering if you'd like to tell our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, we have uh, faith-based recovery meetings every Monday night, and have a Facebook page. It's called Everlasting Recovery, and we basically just touch base on... Uh, the spiritual aspect of our recovery, either from drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, we have people from all different um, addictions in our in our class. So it covers a wide spectrum. And you're associated with Cornerstone Church, and uh, they're uh, in. It's kind of partnership between Cornerstone Church and Cross uh, View Church, over in uh, both in Akron. And uh, they both kind of help out and let us use their space and uh, help fund it. And it's uh, we've had great success. We're going on four years now, so we've had quite a few people come through. You know, when you're dealing with addicts and, and you know, people that have problems with substance abuse, one step forward, two steps back at times, but uh, we keep plugging away. So if you live in southern Summit County, southwestern Portage County, or northern Stark County, you're probably in a good position to get there. Look for, it's called Everlasting Recovery? Yep, on Facebook. On Facebook. 
and that will uh, to lead you to the meetings. Yep, and there's help you out there. Uh, we keep everything updated and uh, put up some uh, things to keep people motivated. And uh, there's an email button on there that you can email, and uh, we'll get back with you. All right. Thank you. Well, brother, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I hope you had fun with that episode. I did. I did. It was a lot. Of I fun. did too. I learned a lot. I did it surprise you that he was he was really a flash in the pan. I mean, it spent most of his life behind bars. So for him to come out and have this burst of activity that would just turn him into a legend. I think that surprised me. It was, and he, he flamed out early, too. I yeah. mean, it wasn't like he was an old man when he died. So, um, you know, he better to burn out than fade away, I guess. <laughs> That's what they say. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. You're welcome. Well, that's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. The Venus Flytraps are from Cleveland, Ohio, and they go by the individual names of Kelly Venus, Aubrey Oblivion, Vondrella Raygun, and Eric Blank. I'm guessing those are either not their real names or they're the children of rock stars. (laughs) Exactly. What do you think? Find them and follow them on Facebook and Instagram or go check them out in person. They'll be playing at the Grog Shop on July 24. Their song tonight, Ghost on the Phone, is off their first full-length album, Night of the Venus Flytraps. And they described it as, uh, here's a quote, a mix of substuges fuzz guitars with psychedelic melodies and Bo Diddley's ghost hovering over the whole thing. Anyway, they have plans to release a video in support of the song this summer, as well as releasing some brand new music. Oh, well, I'm ready for another listen. We played a clip of this at the start of the podcast. Now, here's the whole thing. Ghost on the Phone by the Venus Flytraps. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. 
With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.